coming up today, why we're all hungry for skin, why everyone is getting in a flap over apps, and Natasha lightens the mood with lots of very depressing economic news. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Templeton, and joining me this week are Amit Katwale. Hello. Natasha Banal. Hello. And Matt Burgess. Hello. This was the week when Tesla boss Elon Musk took to Twitter to irk just about anyone with more than half a brain cell by demanding that authorities free America from lockdown. In an earnings call with investor, Musk, investors, Musk doubled down on the comments, saying the lockdown was forcibly imprisoning people in their homes against all their constitutional rights. This is also the week when Odeon said it would no longer show titles from Universal Pictures in its cinemas when they reopen after lockdown, after the studio said it would start releasing titles for streaming and cinema simultaneously following the roaring success of the home release of Trolls World Tour. The move will affect more than a thousand cinemas which are part of the AMC group. British Airways announced plans to cut up to 12,000 jobs this week as the outlook for the aviation industry becomes ever more grim during the coronavirus crisis. IAG, the airline's parent company, said it would take several years to get back to the passenger numbers of 2019. And finally, this was the week that we learnt that coronavirus has had little to no impact on Spotify. The company has passed more than 130 million paid subscribers for the first time. Despite it seeing an ad revenue drop, more people have been signing up for a subscription premium tier service. Very good. Um, I was just thinking, do we have anything to apologise for after last week? Did we manage to record without a hitch? Or was there a hitch? Largely. I don't think Matt Reynolds was there, so that's that's always Matt Reynolds that has been banished for. for a second week in a row. Um, Natasha, there was a, 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 minor, a minor technical hiccup, but I think we got rid of that in the edit. So yeah. maybe, maybe this is the week, guys, where we get through a whole episode without fouling up. Maybe. You have maybe. said this in the first sort of minute, so I have zero confidence that will be the case. No pressure. Um, what did we learn this week? Let's start with Amit. Um, I learned that when you... Uh, sorry, I just got distracted by a massive thunderbolt in the background. Um, I learned that when you have a kidney transplant, they don't take the old kidney out. Um, they, they just leave it in the... It's, uh, it's safer because there are fewer incisions required. And the new kidney is usually placed in the abdomen, where it's easier to get get to in case there's any complications later on. So they redesign your organs? Yeah, well, they, they just cram another one in there. And then I guess if you need a, th- a third kidney or a fourth kidney, they stick that one in there too, and, and, and so on and so forth, until you're just, you know, a walking, walking bag of kidneys. Yeah. I think the weather that is wherever you are, Amit, is uh, heading my way. The sky has suddenly gotten very dark. In fact, we should we should pause briefly for a bird update, Amit. Um, what's going on with the uh, ornithological delights? I saw a squirrel running up the tree the other day towards the nest, and I am very, very concerned, like deeply, deeply worried about this, honestly. For those that weren't listening last week, r- reminders of, of what's likely to happen soon outside your window well, there is a family of magpies uh who've built a nest uh literally just right outside my window where i'm sitting now uh and they should be their young should be ready to hatch in the next couple of weeks hopefully according to the rspb website if they've not been eaten by squirrels unless they've been eaten by squirrels but 
so these 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 weeks are uh, tense times over over here. All right, I'll uh, I'll make a note to uh, head to uh, Magpie update as as a first priority on next week's show. Um, Natasha, what did you learn this week? Uh, I learned something about hats. So uh, very small children in Hangzhou province, I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly. Anyway, Hangzhou province in China have been given really interesting headgear, headgear sorry, to help them respect social distancing rules. And these little hats, they have sort of two horizontal plumes of fabric that come out, they sort of stick out at 90 degree angles on both sides where their ears are. So they sort of have a little normal hat and then the sticky out bits. Um, but these hats aren't like a new invention that anyone's come up with. They're in fact um, brought back from the Middle Ages, uh, during the Song Dynasty, um, officials used to wear those hats to prevent them conferring in whispers with one another at court. So it used to actually be a social distancing method then, and it's been brought back now. So I thought that was quite cute. And they look so cute with the hats on, genuinely so cute. Those hats so big, the heads are so small. It's hilarious. It's always good to bring visual facts onto the podcast. (laughs) Everyone go away and Google Hangzhou Province social distancing hats for children. Matt Burgess, what did you learn this week? Uh, As you all know, and will be very acutely aware, humans have 206 bones in their bodies. How many bones, this is what I learned this week, does a horse have in its body? Why would I become acutely aware of the fact (laughs) that I have that many bones? Are you going to take some of them away? You're you're sitting around at the moment, not too much to do in lockdown. might start counting your bones. Um, How many bones does a horse have? Uh, So we have how many again? How many do we have? 206 in the human body. 152. Anybody else? I'm going to say more. I'm going to say 250. Why not? I think it's less. I think it's like 90 or something really low. Uh, apparently, uh, and when I was learning this fact, uh, the internet said this is typically, um, I don't know what the untypical situations are. Horses have 205 bones in their body, one less than humans. Natasha wins? I think so. What a deeply boring By fact. Default. We'll, we'll, <laughs> say, we'll say she wins. Uh, very There's good. There's no winners. No winners. <laughs> Other than abnormal horses with too many or too few bones. Um, I learned this week that Amazon had $1.7 billion worth of unredeemed gift cards in 2018. So its gift cards don't expire for 10 years, but Amazon's accounts shows that it believes that after nine months, an unredeemed gift card will never be redeemed. So at that point, it essentially spends the money knowing it will never have to pay the loan back free money for Amazon. So if there's a lesson in that, it's cash in your gift cards when you get given them by your great uncle for Christmas. I didn't know Amazon had gift cards. Oh yeah, $1.7 billion worth last year. (laughs) No idea. In fact. Zero. Uh, The quiz. We've teased it twice. We're going to tease it again and we'll tease it again next week. Um, We've got a date Save the date for May the 13th when we're going to be doing the first ever live wired virtual podcast pub quiz. Didn't say those words in the right order. May the 13th. Um, we're looking at doing it at 8 p.m. in the evening, UK time. 
we're setting up all the technical details of it. We're trying to um, make it so that as many of you as possible can join. We'll have a sign-up link and all the details for you next week. But if you had any ambitious plans for May the 13th in the evening, cancel them right now because this is going to be way better. May the 13th, 8pm, the podcast pub quiz live. All right, on with the stories. Amit, you've been getting hungry for skin this week. Hungry for delicious, delicious skin. Yes. Um, so we are into week six or week seven of lockdown here in the UK. I've, frankly, I've lost count. Um, and social distancing is starting to take a little bit of a toll on people's mental health. People who live alone have reported kind of a longing for any sort of human contact, whether that's, you know, a hug or a handshake or even just a tap on the shoulder. Obviously, Zoom calls are are great and, you know, we're all getting used to them, but they're not quite a substitute for actual physical human contact. Um, Some research from the uh, Touch Research Institute at the University of Miami found that 26% of the 100 people they surveyed said they felt very deprived of touch. Uh, And this actually taps... Do we... Did we feel deprived? I think we're all quite fortunate that we don't live alone. Like we all live with our partners, which I think really helps. But I think a lot of people that are living on their own are really struggling because you don't see your friends, you don't see your family. Yeah, so this was something I hadn't really considered. And then I read the article that we published this week and thought, huh, other than my kid and my partner, I've not touched another human being. Um, I, I was ill slightly before lockdown. So if we're into week seven, I'm on week eight. Um, so it's been that long. Um, and it's not that I was going around touching everyone all the time, but, you know, you, you shake someone's hand or you give a friend a hug or even handing over change at a pub. You know, you briefly brush someone's palm, not in a creepy way. Um, but it's, it's just very odd to think that your, your whole world has become that much smaller. And for some people, it's become really, really small. And this is what this whole idea of skin hunger touches on, right? Yeah, it's, it's that I was thinking about it today like that you know where you have to like get to the bar and it's like four deep and you have to like squeeze past people to like get through and you might tap them on the shoulder for them to make room that just feels so alien right now like a completely different world that we used to live in um but yeah as you said this is um this is called skin hunger and it's um a neurological phenomenon Uh, it's a biological need for human touch it's why um when you have a baby they kind of place the baby on the parents like naked chest to like kind of build that connection uh, and it, it has like a, a neurological effect. So uh, human touch kind of stimulates pressure sen- uh, sensors under the skin and that sends signals up to the brain uh, via the vagus nerve. Uh, and as activity in that nerve increases, it slows the nervous system down, it slows down heart rate, it lowers your blood pressure and it shows it relaxes you basically. Uh, it reduces levels of stress hormones, it releases oxytocin, which is the hormone that bonds people together. Um, so biologically, human touch is, is good for you. It makes you feel calmer, it makes you feel happier, and it makes you feel more sane. And missing out on it can have long-term effects. Yeah, is this something that, like, what do we know that much about the sort of research behind this in terms of, like, what are the implications of us being in uh, these scenarios where we're not having as much uh, physical contact with others? Yeah, so a lot of the, a lot of the psychological research has been done uh, into kind of, like, development in the developmental ages. So, like, a lot of work's been done on animal studies looking at, like, how being deprived of touch from, from birth uh, has, like, a seriously detrimental impact on your neurological development. There's been a bunch of... Uh, studies with monkeys and things like that that are quite make quite grim reading by modern standards that I remember kind of studying when I was at university um but 
it, like for for more modest, like if you if you've grown up being used to touch and you suddenly get deprived of it, there are kind of adverse health outcomes. So touch is quite instrumental for the functioning of our immune system again because it helps reduce our cortisol levels. So cortisol is basically the stress hormone. So when your cortisol levels are high, your immune system is depleted. Uh, cortisol kills uh, a type of white blood cell called a natural killer cell, which is what attacks viruses. So. In um, HIV patients, uh, human touch actually increases the number of natural killer cells, so it helps fight HIV and cancer. Um, a lack of touch can also impact on your sleep. So, you know, moving the skin also, as well as uh, ac- increasing activity in the, the vagus nerve that I just talked about, it also increases serotonin. Um, and serotonin has been linked to, or low levels of serotonin have been linked to insomnia, anxiety, depression. Uh, so there's this whole kind of suite of um, kind of health uh, outcomes, adverse health outcomes linked to stress and, and a lack of sleep. Well, so we're still going to be stuck alone or wherever we happen to be for the foreseeable future. So what what can we do about all of this? Is, is there anything that can be done? Well, obviously, you know, uh, you can you can recreate the social aspects of, you know, seeing people as we've all been doing via, you know, Zoom drinks and, and you know, Zoom uh, quiz nights and just like zoom catch-ups and things like that or house party other other video apps are available um but although the technology for kind of communicating is 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 pretty good at this point they don't you know you can't recreate that sense of touch and there have been a bunch of technologies using kind of haptic technology that have tried to recreate uh you know the the, the sensation of being touched but frankly they're all a bit creepy you know it's kind of like you know these weird like sex dolls and like like uh pillows that like hug you and things like that um but there are kind of strategies you can use that that can help reduce the sensation of skin hunger if you are self-isolating alone so um if you have a pet you know petting an animal can actually really help because it moves your skin around and and, you know just that the physical it's almost like the physical act actually kind of triggers this like psychological um result even even exercising, so get as much exercise as you can. Walking around your room actually stimulates pressure receptors and kind of has the same effect. Give yourself a scalp massage, rub moisturiser into your face. These are suggestions from one of the researchers we spoke to. Literally moving your skin can, can kind of help. It's not the same, but it can kind of help alleviate the sensation. So are things going to go back to normal? We were talking at the start of uh, this story about being in a pub and sort of parting the crowds to get to the bar or shaking um, a friend's hand or giving someone a hug. Are things going to go back to normal, do we think? Or is this going to change the way that we see large crowds of people and interact with them? It's hard, it's hard to know at this point. I wrote about this a few weeks ago about how, you know, coronavirus could kill the handshake, which is a slightly, you know, uh, overdramatic way of putting it, I guess. But, um, you know, I think there are certain social conventions and certain interactions that we have with people that are going to take a long time to come back uh, and even before the pandemic you know a lot of uh, institutions a lot of developed nations were already like the, the amount of touch had kind of drastically dropped anyway for you know a whole range of reasons from kind of safeguarding in schools to like you know litigation people in an official capacity are, are quite reluctant to you know touch you <laughs> unless they have to right um so uh, the researchers we spoke to for this piece have been doing a, a study in airports. Uh, they observed over 4,000 interactions and they found that in airports in public, there's, no, there's virtually no touching that goes on in that scenario. So in certain settings, we're already kind of living in this touch-free world. 
Yeah, that was one thing that I was going to mention, actually, in terms of like travel and transport um, and particularly sort of like public transport. Um, I imagine that after things sort of like uh, lockdown situations ease a little bit, um, people in in London, where I guess we all are and other big cities where there's a lot of public transport will be a lot more reluctant to have, um, I guess, unwanted touch in terms of um, when they're traveling on a busy train and everybody has to cram in and sort of like press up against each other and stuff like that. Um, I imagine that situation is going to be something that probably does change for quite a while um because nobody's going to want to be in that situation and it's something we've been talking about um a little bit amongst the team about how cities might redesign themselves as, as well right we're seeing um a potential uh, early ban on cars in certain parts of paris as they introduce more bike lanes and more space for pedestrians berlin has introduced temporary widening of bike lanes so that people can get around the city more without having to rely on public transport and it's quite easy to imagine that yeah sure things will return to normal while forgetting quite how much has changed in a very very short space of time so it's not a given that things will go back to exactly how they were before and certainly something as simple as a handshake i mean i'm i'm not a great handshaker anyway i think they're a, a, a little bit um sort of show offy or whatever but it, it, it just seems like a, a weird thing to do unnecessarily like when you could just i don't know wave at someone or yeah exactly or or tap feet you know which i think was one of the suggestions amit in your article that you, you wrote all those weeks ago yeah i mean i think i think there is some there is i think there is a social benefit to a handshake beyond a wave actually i think that 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 there's something about the, the the skin contact that actually I think has a, a deeper connection than than just waving at someone or, or tapping feet. Um, I think I, what I like to think is that actually, you know, we like to think we're living in kind of exceptional times and this has never happened before and everything's changed forever. But actually, this isn't, you know, in, in 1918, things did go back to normal, like, you know, after the Spanish flu um, epidemic. So I like to think that maybe there'll be a bit of a lag, but eventually we'll bring back the good things and maybe learn some lessons and some of the unnecessary things will change uh, but hopefully the things that we value will come back down with handshakes no more handshakes podcast at wired.co.uk what things that we had taken for granted that were perfectly normal pre-lockdown might not come back are you feeling this sort of skin hunger vibe have you come up with any coping mechanisms for making sure that you don't feel so lonely and isolated during this quite challenging time podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that or anything else to do with the story that we were just discussing there our second story this week is about economics don't skip forward 10 minutes it's well worth your time um natasha this week you've been taking an exhaustive look into the economic impact of coronavirus and how that's going to play out over the next year or so yeah so if any can anything can make economics interesting it's sort of doomsday predictions and this is what i'm serving on this podcast today so uh, as you might have been following if um if you've been watching the news for a bit it's, it's the first few weeks of this lockdown the world's economy has basically been an utter freefall uh 50 percent um, of the countries that represent uh, the world's GDP shut down for business. Um, toilet paper turned into a coveted commodity. Farmers have been tossing out thousands of gallons of milk as the demand from coffee shops and restaurants
restaurants completely evaporated. Uh, global supply chains have collapsed. Manufacturing PMI fell to 32.9 in April 2020, which is the lowest that it's ever been since records began. Uh, video conferencing company Zoom, which we're using to create this podcast today, emerged from basically complete obscurity to hit 200 million users in March. You've got corporations, schools, and even the House of Commons started working remotely and using it. Um, so so when, when this whole disaster first started, uh, Chancellor Rishi Sunak quickly emptied out the Treasury and borrowed a staggering amount of money to basically manually keep the economy afloat. But that quick response might only be a partial victory. One in four of the businesses that have been queuing up for government bailouts still plan to make workers redundant, um, and they're going to be ramping up uh, the demand for universal credit. Things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. Last week, uh, Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty admitted that some form of lockdown could be imposed until the end of this year. Uh, there are no quick fixes to this, so we kind of took a look at what the world is going to look like in 12 months' time, and it's not pretty. So how, I guess, how two parts to this, how bad could things get and how much... Um, is our sort of like economic recovery tied to people not being in a lockdown situation um, and free to roam uh, the streets? It's hugely tied together because basically the longer we spend in lockdown, the worse it's going to get. This is, this is, we're looking at how bad could it be basically it's going to be bad the question is how bad so the the exit path that uh, the economists that i spoke to for this piece were talking about is is going to be likely one of three letters if we're very very lucky over the next 12 months the economy will either look like a v which is basically you know very sharp drop followed by a sharp recovery a u which is a dip and it will just carry on flatlining for a bit and then go up again uh, or an l which is a dip and flat growth and basically hardly any recovery for, for the foreseeable future. Uh, this morning I was reading about the potential for W because we need more letters, why not? Uh, which is we recover partially, hit by another uh, set of coronavirus uh, wave and then that would cause the economy to completely drop again, lose any gains that it would have um, had in the, in the months that it was open and then eventually recover again. So regardless of what kind of letter we get, it's, it's unrealistic to think that things are going to go back to normal. We're at this stage of basically damage control, um, where if we get out of lockdown at the end of June, we might be able to shave off some of the years that we will inevitably be spending in austerity. We, we need the lockdown to end at least partially by June to attempt to stay on track for the very, very grim predictions that we've already had for the economy. So um, it was only last month that people were saying that the economy was going to shrink 35% and unemployment would uh, hit 10%. And that's basically speaking optimistically. So if we're still in the same situation by the end of this year, I mean, there there are no projections that exist for what could happen, James. (laughs) We're now at a point, I think the latest unemployment figures out of the United States is now one in five Americans are unemployed and obviously the situation in America is a little bit more serious than it is in any other country in the world at this stage but that does show potentially the worst case scenario beyond June if we're not able to get this virus under control and the economy isn't able to be restarted we're talking about levels of economic hardship that go further than the Great Depression. Yeah, it's, it's a huge um, kind of socioeconomic impact that this could have. I mean, when we're talking about 
industry wanting to get back to business and the huge pressure that's been piled on politicians. Donald Trump wants to get the company moving. He's a uh, company, even country. Sorry, I'm talking like he is. Um, he wants to get the country moving as quickly as possible because they can't afford to stay in lockdown. So the longer that happens, the worse it's going to be. We've seen countries in Europe, you know, Germany, Italy, they're talking about getting out of lockdown, not because they're ready to do so, but simply because they can't afford to stay on lockdown any longer. And the UK is kind of falling into that category. Boris Johnson, when he was addressing businesses at the beginning of, of this week, he was saying, Look, I understand that you're impatient, but we have to make sure that people's health comes first. That's only going to buy him so much time because industry is telling him that unless you're able to prop up the economy for the foreseeable future, somehow get us the dividends that we're not getting because we're not getting any money whatsoever. We're, you're just covering our basis. We're not getting any profits. There's literally no way they can carry on. So it's, it's really, really um, unrealistic that this government rescue plan uh, that has allowed businesses to basically qualify for help is going to be a sustainable thing. So th this basically the, the rescue project that we've seen happen from the Treasury has meant that They've said, OK, as long as you qualify for our schemes, you can ask for money. This is going to have a knock on effect. Why? Because a load of businesses that should have collapsed or weren't, weren't going to survive anyway are getting money. And that's going to end up being bad debt for us, the taxpayers. We've bought a lot of um, a lot of things and now some of them might not turn out to be worth anything at all. The companies that will survive and that we have equity in, it's going to be the same situation as the 2008 um, recession. Well, we'll have to wait years to be able to cash out on that. So we've got all of this mountain of debt that's piling towards us. Um, the, the treasury is empty. It's, it's borrowed so much money. It's ridiculous. Um, it, it, so it's going to have to now figure out how to sell those stakes quite quickly. Um, it, it's just spent a massive, massive mountain of money and, and it can't do that for, for the rest of the year. It's, it's just not a sustainable kind of thing. So this is going to be very, very painful. 21,000 businesses have vanished in the month of March alone. This is over uh, 21,000 that you would normally have died uh, as a result of, of normal business activity. High street brands are going to vanish. Um, they've already started vanishing. All, all of these kind of big household names that we've known, some of them will not survive this crisis. And if lockdown doesn't end in June, all of the businesses that have been weathering the storm, that have used up all of the money they have in their coffers, are not going to have any money any longer. So we're going to face even more uh, businesses failing. I think I think it's safe to say that the high street wasn't in a great shape going kind of going into this. Um, and, you know, no one's talking about, you know, even if lockdown does end in June, it's not going to be like an immediate return to normal. Like, what are we actually going to be looking at? Like, you know, even if lockdown lifts, it's not like everyone's going to suddenly rush out and start you know, consuming, is it? No, they're not. So, I mean, obviously, if you're listening to what all the economists have to say, it sounds like devastation. It sounds like the apocalypse, basically. We're going to be poor. We're going to be on the breadline. It's not, you know, that's that's not going to happen. I mean, there's going to be a lot of businesses that are going to get out of this. But when we do go outside, if that does happen in June, people aren't going to want to spend money. They're going to be afraid. Uh, people uh, have been talking for a long time now about a second wave of coronavirus. There is no vaccine as of yet, and there's not going to be one for at least the next 12 months. And people will be nervous about going out, spending their money, a lot of people have become unemployed unexpectedly. A lot of people have been furloughed. They don't know what their future holds. So you're not going to see people suddenly rushing off on holiday, taking planes, taking trains, staying in hotels, uh, even spending a lot of money on those high street brands that are suffering so much as a result of this. There were some figures that were released by EY this week that said that the economy will take until 2023 to re return to the levels that were present before this crisis happened. And that almost half of the consumer spend that would have taken place in 2020 
is simply going to be lost. So we're, we're unlikely to see any of the kind of leisure activities that we would have undertaken um, in any other point of the year happen at all. So theatres, concert venues, bars, they're all going to be lumped at the very bottom of the government's priority list and they're not likely to open up before the end of this year because there's no way of gathering people together safely at this point in a socially distanced kind of way. So just like pubs and restaurants, we're not likely to see any of them open anytime soon. Um, and just, I don't know if you guys have been out onto the high street recently, but there's sort of an eerie kind of atmosphere where you've got like loads of people queuing, but loads of other shops are just shut. That kind of vibe is going to go on for some time yet. In my high streets always looked a little bit like that. So it's, it's almost <laughs> business as usual um, in my slightly scabby part of South London. Terrifying. Um, behind all this, there's an awful lot of people who have been put on furlough, not just in the UK, but all around the world. And the longer it takes for the economy to get up to full speed, the longer these people surely are going to have to remain on furlough. So this is going to be a huge issue as well, isn't it? Yeah, it really, really is. And the, the longer it lasts, the worse it will be. Basically, over 4 million people have already been signed up to the furlough scheme, which involves taxpayers paying for, for their wages so that companies don't have to lay them off as a result of this crisis. So uh, the, the, the problem here is that if, if the deadline uh, for lockdown is extended, um, if, if it carries on, um, you know, unlimited amount of time, this scheme will have to end. So it's supposed to end in June. It might be extended until July. Regardless of when that happens, it's not clear on what is going to happen to all those people who've been furloughed after this happens. Because the economy is not going to go back to normal. Everything's not going to return to normal quickly, which means their jobs still won't be needed. Um, so we're, we're going to see a, a far, far bigger impact, loads more people being unemployed. Um, and for the people who are going back to businesses that hope to recover. We're looking at loads more zero hours contracts, loads more temp workers. Uh, companies are gonna be really, really afraid to increase their permanent workforce because they won't know what's going to happen next. The innovation side of things is also going to hurt people. So the longer they're away from the workplace, the, the more likely your workplace is gonna realize that you weren't really needed in the first place. So they might say, look, actually it was great um, to have you working for us, but we've realized in the four months that you've been away that um, we can do without you. So there's, there's, there's no obligation on behalf of uh, companies to keep people on. And for those people who are in permanent jobs, it's really unlikely, especially in big cities, that we're gonna be suddenly told that we can go back to the office. So we're, we're going to basically be sat just in the same place as we are right now, unless companies are able to adapt their offices to respect social distancing, which is not likely to happen. If you have to take public transport to work, if you have to you know, sit in offices that are quite crowded, there's just no way of, of doing that in a sort of safe way. So we're unlikely to, to see any of that change. That also means that the job market is completely and utterly screwed because people aren't going to want to move jobs. They're going to be really afraid. Um, and the only thing that's going to be out there is, is temp jobs and zero hours contracts. So it's not a pretty picture at all. I told you Natasha was going to lighten the mood. Um, I know. You, you, you definitely delivered on the promise. Thank you, yes. Natasha. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> Podcast.wired.co.uk. We've got a very international audience. We've had correspondence recently from listeners in Australia and New Zealand and all over Europe and North and South America. Um, do get in touch and let us know how your economies are restarting, what changes you're beginning to see, and maybe what green shoots of promise there are podcast at wired.co.uk let us know what everyone else needs to know about the lockdown easing where you are our third and final story this week matt burgess you've spent an inordinate amount of time looking at the hugely complicated world of contact tracing apps 
When you say I spent an inordinately amount, long amount of time, you mean too long, don't you? Well, I mean, it was it was um, <laughs> a comprehensive look, shall we say? Yes, uh, that's that's fair. Um, so this is very much tied to pretty much the issues that Natasha was talking about, about at the end of um, that sort of depressing section, really. Um, in the fact that, yes, the world has been in a lot of lockdowns now, but people, as we're starting to see the first waves peak um, around the world, uh, people are starting to think about returning to normal, whatever that normal is. Um, and part of this is people being allowed to go out into their jobs, meet with friends uh, and, and generally have some more freedoms back that they haven't had before. Um, so many governments and health services around the world are looking at systems that will allow uh, this to happen. And there is not universally, but quite widely, there is uh, an approach that a lot of people are looking at, which involves three different steps, testing, tracing and isolating. Um, and this firstly means that they need to have in place the capacity to quickly test anybody who might have symptoms of uh, coronavirus. Uh, they need to then be able to sort of trace them um, and track back their movements to see who they would have interacted with, who they would have uh, spread the, the virus to any further. And they also need to have systems in place uh, either within their healthcare setups where people go to uh, be treated or looked after or self-isolation quarantine setups where they're away from other people and don't um, overload health capacity systems. Um, so over the last week, I've been looking at the sort of second step of this, which is tracing. And in particular, there's one um, solution, and I put it in inverted uh, collars, uh, that has reared its head again and again across the world and gained a lot of traction um, in this space. And those are contact tracing apps. Um, it's become and a bit being, of a buzzword, yeah. right? Yeah, it has a little bit. Um, but around the world there are more than 30 different schemes that are in place that are uh, being set up to create uh, contact tracing apps and essentially like there is a quite a bit of variance across these different apps generally but um, there's a couple of different things that they do that is fairly common across the across the board so most countries are looking at contact tracing apps that use um, proximity uh, detection so they're not looking at um, recording everybody's data GPS location on your phones they're using instead the sensors uh, and the chips that rely uh, upon bluetooth technology which is essentially just a connection technology that can transmit amounts of data but is pretty um, low powered and works on devices in a uh, pretty uh, unintrusive way in terms of collecting data about what you're doing bluetooth itself doesn't collect information about your movements uh, where you exactly are in the world so bluetooth couldn't tell me um that james you're in your home right now um but bluetooth could um, if there are devices nearby, so if there's another phone in your house, James, your mobile phone will be talking um, to that via Bluetooth. And essentially the systems that are being set up to do contact tracing is, these com is logging these conversations that happen between Bluetooth devices. And then when one person um, reports that they have uh, or believe to have uh, coronavirus symptoms, they enter it into an app and it this communicates to all other Bluetooth devices uh, that they've been nearby um, that they may have the virus. Yeah, this is a very, very technical issue. And the way it's been talked about by public health officials isn't necessarily particularly helpful. Um, and a lot of better communication is going to be needed over the coming weeks to persuade people to download and properly use these 
apps. But what we're talking about here, just so I've got it right, GPS, my device, if through GPS, Google knows exactly where I've been. If I'm pinging Wi-Fi routers in supermarkets and restaurants, then that's a definite location way of tracking my location. But the Bluetooth system that's being proposed, you essentially get an ID, which is a random number that expires after 14 days. And that ID pings other IDs that come anywhere near it. So you effectively get like a, a cookie, a, 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 like a, a breadcrumb trail. Yeah. And then if any anyone along that trail had coronavirus, your phone will ping. But what it's not keeping is a record of where you've moved because it doesn't know where you were. It just knows who you were near. Right. Yeah. So it's it's. The, the key terms that people have been using is proximity. So it is um, the things that are nearby to you. And in this case, the things are other Bluetooth devices. So it's Bluetooth devices communicating with other Bluetooth devices that are nearby. And why this is uh, favoured over sort of GPS systems is that a it doesn't collect that specific location data saying you're in the shop or you're in a certain part of the world. Um, and B, also um, Bluetooth is more accurate in terms of uh, the sort of ranges that it works over so it will work over a shorter distance uh, it will be able to detect when you're within two meters of other people whereas gps if you've ever used um sort of like a google maps or any system that uses it it will take a few minutes to try and track down exactly where you are if you're in an area with low quality uh data signal then um, the gps will show you somewhere else or it'll just go a bit glitchy so bluetooth isn't using that same system it's just communication between devices and to go one slight step further on the technical side of things just because it's one of the areas that is uh, sort of hotly debated there are two sort of sort of systems that have been created or are looking at being created um, and one of these is by apple and google which is uh, through a rare partnership that they've done um, and the other one is sort of like by other independent researchers and they fall into two different categories which are centralized systems and decentralized systems um, and to, to to try and break it down as simply as possible, decentralized systems such as Apple and Google, um, these sort of uh, communications that are going on between Bluetooth devices are stored on your phone until um, you put an entry saying, I believe I've got coronavirus. And then that data gets sent to the cloud and then all of the devices that you have uh, been nearby get a notification. And that's how that works. Whereas centralized systems, the UK and France are going down this route, other countries are mostly not. Um, centralized systems, those interactions are stored on a central database, which has potential privacy concerns because uh, they're stored in one place more centrally um, and not uh, on individual devices. Very, very briefly, on the centralized system argument, what some critics have said is if you take enough of this data in aggregate and you're able to analyze all of it, then you can start to understand where people were and how they were moving through the population. So if all this information is isolated away on individual devices, then you're kind of half blind. But if you have all of the information in a centralized database, then it does potentially give you power to understand an awful lot more about how people are moving around. And that's that's one of the key privacy concerns with the centralized database and what clever enough governments might be able to do with that information. 
Yeah, it's that's one of the sort of core tensions at the heart of some of these apps, and particularly the countries like the UK and France that are going for centralised systems rather than decentralised. Um, it's the trade-off between having a lot of information potentially in one database that could, I guess, be hacked, could be de-anonymised in some sort of ways, uh, but also having centralised systems does potentially mean that you could build um, the sort of... the the tracing and the technology more into your health system you could combine other data to it um but essentially apple and google have gone for the most privacy uh focused approach and other governments aren't necessarily liking this so will this actually do the job that they want it to do putting it all in a centralized system gathering all this data supposedly helping to save lives will, will it actually work this is one of the sort of really big unknown questions at the second um there are a lot of things lot of hurdles that um, contact tracing apps have to overcome to actually be useful really um so we know that tracing uh, contact tracing done manually um which is humans doing interviews uh, me asking you natasha where you've been for the last two weeks and the everybody you've interacted with those sorts of interviews that are done by people um have been very effective in terms of uh, virus tracing uh, both in um in the coronavirus outbreak now and also previously in uh, other uh, epidemics that we've seen around the world um so the system the underlying principle works but if it works on phones it's something that we still have to um have to see because this has never happened before um and essentially there is very little evidence to show at the moment that the automation of this process will work. There are issues around how accurate Bluetooth will be. Um, there are issues about uptake. So you need uh, at least 80% of the population um, that have got smartphones and are using these to be uh, using these apps to actually get sort of like wide coverage to stop the spread um, and to track enough people. Um that might have coronavirus um so it's essentially like the underlying principle works but we don't know whether adding technology as a layer on top of this will actually make that much of a difference and the very small amount of information data that we do have on this kind of shows that contact tracing apps aren't the magic weapon against coronavirus that some officials in the west are painting them to be in South Korea, Taiwan and Singapore, where they've got far more advanced contact tracing networks. They're relying on fleshy, flawed human beings who are far more reliable and effective in contact tracing than apps, which, as you said, need to be downloaded by a huge percentage of the population. And there was a great detail in your piece, Matt, about one of the technical limitations of Bluetooth. Bluetooth doesn't know if there's a wall between you and someone else with coronavirus, right? So if you're in a shop, that's next to another shop, the person with coronavirus walks into the shop next door, they're pretty close to you, but they're the other side of a two foot thick wall. There's no chance that you've caught the virus, but it would still appear as though you were standing right next to them. You'll get an alert, you'll be quarantined, you'll be sent to test. And this is where it becomes really, really difficult because at scale, that's potentially tens, hundreds of thousands of people being quarantined when they don't need to be. Yeah, and there's just so many sort of like difficulties around this. So for instance, if you were in a shop and uh, you were wearing PPE, somebody else was wearing PPE, that probably diminishes the 
even even if you come close to each other, it probably diminishes the chance of the virus spreading between the two of you. Um, if you're outside, we don't know how this uh, virus, if it does or if it doesn't travel uh, on air particles. Uh, if you were standing two meters apart from somebody and the wind blew in a certain direction, there is a potential chance that um, some of the particles could be transferred across to you, even though you're abi- abiding by social distancing, etc. Um, and I think that generally there are sort of like unanswered questions around uh, if these apps will be useful because what we've seen in uh, South Korea, uh, Taiwan, Singapore, they have used technology, but the technology they used is the more intrusive privacy breaking stuff. So they have used GPS data, they have used CCTV cameras, etc. And they haven't relied on a Bluetooth system like the rest of the world is going to rely on. That's the issue, isn't it? Because for these to work, you know, even slightly, the government is going to have to convince people to install this app on their phones. And privacy activists are already kind of up in arms about this. Um, I, I, I don't know, personally, I kind of feel like I don't mind giving up a little bit of privacy to, you know, for the greater good. But obviously, Matt, you probably come at it from quite a different perspective. But I'm interested to know, like, what you guys think. Would you use one of these apps given the potential privacy risks? No. Give nothing to no one, I say. It's very community-minded of you, Natasha. <laughs> no, but this it, it, it seems to me that a lot of these um, governments are kind of using it as a, a sort of a stopgap if they don't have enough tests that they'll they'll say, oh, it would be really easy for the, for the government over here to just be like, okay, everyone download this app, everyone use this app, we'll just, you know, do a, a green light system, same as um, as what was happening in Wuhan that we had that article the other day about. And and it, that it just doesn't seem like the solution to me. It just end up with all of us in the exact same place as we are right now, which is in our rooms. That's my opinion. Yeah, yeah I think it's, it's a really hard sort of like trade-off to um, at least debate or think about because... On one hand, if you've got these apps and it's, I don't think it's completely unforeseeable to think that uh, in a few months you might have to to go back to the office to work or something like that. You might have to be able to show that you have a clean bill of health or uh, are using this app to be able to actually go out and then integrate with other people. Um, And I think that a lot of people probably would uh, to get some of the sort of like the, the liberties, the freedom back would they would download an app and i think that's where some of the sort of like difficulties with um what this means going forward in terms of like um is this normalizing mass surveillance is it um making it easier for people to um be tracked um will other layers of data be added to these apps um i think those are some of the things that are bigger questions going forward that we don't know the answer to but they're potentially quite worrying but i think in the short term people will uh, potentially sacrifice a little bit of privacy um for being allowed to go out and run in fields of wheat etc running in fields of wheat is all i want to do right now i think for <laughs> me i'll download the app sure no problem with that but the the issue is is it going to work and the 3500 word article that Matt put together for us this week gets a long way towards an answer but there is no answer out there yet we've got these case studies from Asia we've got these critical voices in the security and privacy research communities and we've got these nation states going we need these apps in order to get coronavirus under control but really we're all living through a very very dangerous experiment and we saw in germany this week with the lifting of some elements of the lockdown all this concern about the r rate the infection rate of how the virus is spreading through the community would it eke back up towards 
one, would Germany have to reimpose a lockdown? And there's so many unknowns that suggesting that somehow a clever piece of technology as simple as Bluetooth pinging Bluetooth can get us out of this, it just seems like placing way, way, way too much faith in something that an awful lot of people who are far smarter than any of us suggest just isn't going to work. So sure, download the app, but almost what's the point? And I, I guess the final point, the point, point for me is that the sort of a lot of the uh, models that are behind these apps say that potentially because we don't know how the virus fully does spread at the moment because it um, spreads between people that are don't show any symptoms, um, it could help on that side of things. So they, the modelling people. Uh, behind this say if you have got 80 80 of people using this um you could actually in a very short amount of time stop the spread between larger groups um and if that works i think that's great but um and i think that we should obviously be trying to uh, introduce technologies that will help to make these processes easier quicker um than other things that already exist but it's only one thing as part of a bigger package of having humans doing contact tracing having proper testing having proper medical equipment um and basically the apps probably aren't going to be the silver bullet that people hope they might be the apps alone will not save us but thank you for ending on a mildly optimistic (laughs) note matt burgess podcast at wired.co.uk what contact tracing systems are being put in place in your country what's your perspective on these contact tracing apps are you willing to sacrifice quite a lot of your privacy um, in exchange for some liberty podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that or anything else that we talked about on the show this week and we got quite a few emails this week um, but we're just going to read out one um, some of them were for the attention of Matt Reynolds who's not here um, and some of them were more just uh, general messages of encouragement so thank you very much for those but we got an email from Jan from Berlin who writes to say that they're a long-time listener and a first-time writer they found the Airbnb story that we talked about the other week very interesting and um, they say that I'm um, picturing me talking with glee in my voice about the impending doom of the Airbnb gentry while the podcast um, presenters helplessly shook their heads in the video call um, as I kept on harping on about enemas was quite a bit of fun well I'm glad it was fun um as i have to say 100% he 100% agrees that airbnb has to finally adjust its business model and its marketing slogans um he asked me to do a, a follow up um, which funny enough uh, i'm starting to work on at the moment um which is what's happening to these airbnb listings that were sort of hotel rooms on the platforms. There's an awful lot of revenue that's suddenly missing from people's lives. So even though you've got these individuals who were um, leasing to lease again for Airbnb, behind those leases is is someone who's paying a mortgage or someone who owns a unit that now stands empty. So are we going to have a flood of new apartments onto the long-term rental market or is something else going to happen? An awful lot of those questions we won't have an answer to until well towards the end of this year or potentially into next year but it's certainly a story that we'll be keeping uh, a very close eye on and and probably not using the anima analogy again for a little while um thank you very much for your email jan um podcast at wired.co.uk with your feedback on any of the stories that we talked about this week or anything else that's on your mind a final reminder um of the wired podcast 
pub quiz that we're doing live on May the 13th. Put a note in your diaries. We'll be doing it at 8 o'clock London time on May the 13th. We'll be giving you full details on where to sign up, what to prepare. Um, prepare? Do people need to prepare? Sure, why not? Um, and uh, we'll be telling you all about it next week. Until then, stay safe and we'll see you again same time, same place. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.